today we're going to begin a study in the book of Exodus, and I'm going to try to get us through chapters 1 and 2 this morning. You, know, you may think you've lived a, a long enough time that, that you've had most of your first experiences in your life. First time I wrote a book, uh, rode a bicycle, my, my first kiss, my first paycheck from my first job, the first time I paid income taxes, but uh, not so much for me today. Uh, for you and me both, this is the first time I get to deliver a sermon. So I uh, just please ask that you would grant me an umbrella of mercy this morning. Um, and, uh, and if we get this through together, maybe I'll preach again, and then we'll go through Exodus chapter 3, and, and that's a really good chapter to go through. So Exodus means the going out or departure, and at face value, uh, it's a historical account of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt's cruel slavery. But this book of scripture is much more than that. Exodus paints a, a beautiful picture of the providence of God. It's a story of redemption. It's a picture of the gospel. Uh, and we have the opportunity to understand Exodus in relation to Jesus. Uh, understanding how God's plan of redemption plays out in Exodus provides us with lessons for living our lives on a daily basis. Uh, we will better understand its uh, foundational principles. We'll have some examples to follow and some examples to avoid. So uh, let's dig into today's text. We're not going to try to read all of chapters 1 and 2 here at the start. I'll just start with uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, but it's our tradition here at Wayside that we stand when we read the scriptures. So stand with me, if you will, and we'll read. Um, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's, uh, let's just pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your plan of redemption that began before the foundation of the earth. And we thank you how you reveal it to us in this passage of scripture today. Uh, we just ask that you would meet us in the word with your Holy Spirit and uh, speak to each one of us the message that you would have us to hear. We just thank you for giving us your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so the book of Exodus begins where the book of Genesis ends with each family of Jacob, uh, with the family of Jacob arriving in Egypt. And the first sentence of the text begins with, these are the names of the sons of Israel. The Hebrew name for the book of Exodus is Shema, which literally translates to as, as names. So the names are significant. They show that God and his providence will be further fulfilling his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and ultimately with you and me. So let's just remind ourselves of some of the story of that covenant. In the 12th chapter of Genesis, God calls Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will, uh, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram and Sarai were told to leave their home and everything that was familiar to them and go to some place, go to the land that I would show you. They didn't even know where they were going. They just knew they needed to go. The land we will learn as we study Exodus is special because it has been promised to Abram and his offspring by God. Abram had to trust God to leave everything to go without even knowing where he was going. God gave Abram the faith to trust him, so Abram obeyed God and left Ur of the Chaldeans and took off to parts unknown. The other part of God's promise to Abram, besides the land thing, was that God would make Abram a great nation. That also required Abram to trust God, because when the promise was made, Abram and Sarai were childless. In Genesis chapter 15, Abram questions God. He says, for I am childless. And God brought Abram outside and had him look into the stars. And then he tells them in Genesis 15, verses 5 through 6, look toward heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. And then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And again, when Ab later, when Abram was 99 years old, God reiterates the promise and gives him the covenant of circumcision and changes his name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah. She was 90. So both were a little past, bit past childbearing years. I think of some of the, the couples in this church, if they were uh, you know, making a, a nursery room and painting things right now, it seemed a little uh, uh, unusual that, uh, that they would be having children so late. But that way, when their son Isaac was born, there's no doubt that God was fulfilling his promise. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6, God extends his covenant uh, with Abram to his son Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Uh, Jacob deceives his father and steals the blessing of the firstborn. And then God appears to Jacob in a dream. And again, he repeats the promise of the covenant with, uh, with Jacob and, and gives him the name Israel. And the family grows. Abram, Abraham had one son, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, and Jacob had 12 sons, and son number 11 was Joseph. And Joseph takes a lot of the book of Genesis. You may remember his story. His brothers were very jealous of him, so they sold him to some travelers for the price of a slave. And the, and the travelers took him to Egypt. And scripture tells us that the Lord was with Joseph in Egypt. And so through a series of incredible events, each ordained by God, Joseph goes from being a slave to the person in control of the entire Egyptian economy. God gives Joseph the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, and he prepares the land of Egypt for a worldwide famine. When the famine comes, it drives Joseph's father, Jacob, and, and, his 11, and the 11 brothers of, of Joseph and their families to the only place where food can be found. That's Egypt. And the book of Genesis ends with the sons of Jacob being reunited in Egypt 
and the death of Jacob. And so that's the, the passage that we just read with the names of the sons of Israel. All descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, and Joseph was already in Egypt. This is the the birth of the nation of Israel, the birth of the Israelites, the people of Israel. The names are the names of the 12 sons of Jacob. And since God renamed Jacob Israel, we also know these names as the 12 tribes of Israel. Hence, the Hebrew scriptures call this the book, the book of Exodus, the book of names. So uh, let's read on because now it's like a movie. It's like that scene is over and it fades out and you come back and the little Captain says, 400 years later. So we pick up the scripture, Exodus 1, verses 6 and 7, 400 years later. Uh, when Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, uh, then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. And they found, and so in that 400-year period, they grew. They found favor, uh, favor with Pharaoh at the time, and they grew to several hundred thousand. But then a time came, uh, and that's a fulfillment of a prophecy that, that God gave to Abram in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, verses 13 to 15, we read that the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age." And the rest of that prophecy did come true for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the people of Israel. But if we go back to our text in Exodus, we learn that, that in this, after this 400-year period, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if a war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So in Egypt... The people of Israel were immigrants. They were foreigners in a strange land, sojourners. They came to Egypt as refugees in a time of famine, and things started out favorably, but as the text says, their earlier circumstances and protection were forgotten by a new pharaoh who did not know Joseph, and things got worse. They became slaves. As we read on, Exodus 1, verses 11 through 14, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Fithim and Ramses. And the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the more the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter and hard and with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all the work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It didn't stop at enslaving the Israelites. Pharaoh decided to do something drastic to address the population in the, uh, of the Israelites. So in verses 15 to 17 of chapter 1, we read, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. 
but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So as the story goes on, we see that the Egyptians acted brutally and violently against the Israelites. And this begins with this evil decision by the Pharaoh uh, that initiates a, a state-sponsored genocide that demanded the killing of all male Hebrew babies. Um, this reminds us that the baby Jesus, our deliverer, who survived, he also survived a ruthless genocide of King Herod. Just as Moses survives this decree in Exodus, Jesus survives the baby-killing leadership of Herod. Uh, Pharaoh told the midwives that when they saw the child on the birth stool, uh, and it was a boy, they were to kill him. Why did Pharaoh command this? It seems he attempted to slow the population growth and, and make the, the Israelites fear him. So the Israelites now live in constant terror. Think about it, nine months of dread. Uh, remember, the technology to learn the gender of a baby didn't exist back in those days, so we didn't have any reveal parties. And so on delivery day, the report of it's a boy would devastate the family. However, God would deliver them out of this situation and um, and the last act of the Passover will take the firstborn male child of the Pharaoh. So, um, but let's look at the decision of the two midwives, Shipra and Pua. They heroically did not obey Pharaoh. Instead, they feared God, and they did not do what he said and kill the boy babies. And this led them to a confrontation with Pharaoh, which we read about in verses 18 through 21. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the wife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and God gave and, uh, uh, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. This passage tells us twice that the midwives feared God. Scripture commends their faithful obedience to God. Some people might argue that they lied to Pharaoh, but did they really lie? We don't have the entire statement. What we do have is factual. Hebrew women are vigorous, and uh, they, they did not give, uh, if they didn't give a complete testimony in Pharaoh's court, then I think this is an example like Peter and the other apostles said to the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. And God blessed what they did and gave them families. So uh, there's another thing to note here. Scripture tells us the names of these two midwives, Shifra, which means beautiful one, and Pua, which means splendid one. That's not information that's necessary for us to uh, tell the story of Exodus, but God deems it appropriate to commemorate the actions of these two women by recording their names in Scripture. But did you notice whose name is missing? Pharaoh's. Pharaoh is not named. He's arguably one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. And Pharaohs want to be remembered. They build pyramids and great structures to be remembered. Yet the only names remembered are those who feared God and protected life. Think of it, because Shipra and Pua rescued babies, you and I will live with Christ eternally.
If, if we do not have these women, then you don't have Moses. You don't have the Exodus, David, Mary, or Jesus. And, and so Shifra and Pua are a direct link to your salvation. So if you're looking for a good baby name, Shifra, Pua, right out of the Bible, good ones. When Pharaoh heard the midwife's response, he became infuriated. Infuriated, And in Exodus 1.22, it said, Then Pharaoh commanded his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh declared that every Hebrew baby would be thrown into the Nile. Uh, everyone lived on the Nile. The Nile was the, the lifeblood of Egypt, and it was also used to carry a, the waste away in its strong current. But there's maybe another reason. Egyptians viewed the Nile as a god. Uh, and uh, so the Egyptians like uh, had many gods, but this gave them a way to shift the blame. They, they viewed the Nile as a giver and taker of life. And uh, Pharaoh may have thought he was putting this decision of whether a boy or li a girl lived in, in the hands of God. In this story, we can see a biblical pattern. God places, takes a place of death and turns it into a place of life and salvation. Think about Noah and the flood, or Jonah and the great fish, the people of Israel and the Red Sea, ultimately how Jesus' death on the cross and burial in a tomb became a place of new life in him. All of these accounts underline God's divine power to take death and bring life. So in order to free his people to worship him, God raised up a mediator, a deliverer, a savior named Moses. And now as we move into chapter 2, we start to see Moses. So Exodus 2, verses 1 and 2. Now a man from the house of Levi uh, uh, took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was a fine child, and she hid him for three months. Despite Pharaoh's genocide, a Levite woman bore a son and kept him alive for three months. But, as verses two, 3 through 6 tell us, when she couldn't hide him when she could hide him no longer, she took, him, uh, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds in the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done of him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river uh, while her young woman walked beside the, the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and they took it. And she opened it. She saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. The Hebrew word for basket in this text, Teba, is the same word used in Genesis chapters 6 through 9 to describe Noah's Ark. The only two places in scripture uh, where this term is used. So this little ark basket floats down the dangerous Nile, and God keeps Moses safe from crocodiles and starvation and drowning, and along comes the daughter of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the man who decreed the death of all Hebrew boys, and Contrary to what the standard in the community would be, she takes pity on him. The insinuation here is that God is directing her emotional response to be something than what, than what she would be as the daughter of the Pharaoh in seeing the child. She's not reacting in a way that current events in Egypt might predict. So then we read on, Exodus 2, verses 7 through 10. 
his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women, uh, for a woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to the Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. How amazing is this? A mother gives up her, her, her child by placing him in the Nile, and a few minutes later, she's now raising him and getting paid for it, right under the nose of Pharaoh. God in his providence is absolutely in charge of these circumstances. The daughter of Pharaoh gave up the baby uh, and named it Moses, which means to draw out, thinking I drew him out of the water. What a perfect name for this child, given the fact that God would use Moses to draw his chosen people out of Egypt. Moses then grows up. And when we reach verse 11 of Exodus chapter 2, he's a grown man. In Acts 7.23, Stephen tells us that Moses is 40 years old when this event occurs. So Exodus 2, verses 11 through 12. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out among the Egyptian people, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way, and he looked that that way, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now this may seem like an act of righteous indignation. Moses' own conscience, though, as, as, as recorded in Scripture, reveals to us that he knew he was wrong. He may have looked this way and that way, but which way didn't he look? He didn't look up. He didn't seek any guidance from God. He simply acted on his own accord, and then he tried to hide his actions by burying the man he killed in the sand. And then we read further in verses 13 and 15, uh, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh hear, heard of it, he, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Uh, in the book of Acts, Stephen also tells us how Moses was motivated to act against the Egyptian. In Acts 7.25, it says that Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand but they did not understand. It was not only wrong for Moses to kill the man, but it was also wrong for him to attempt to lead God's people without God's blessing and instruction. He acted in his own strength and the people of Israel rejected him. So Moses gets another character building experience in the wilderness before he's called to lead God's people. Exodus 2, 16 through 22 tells us that now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to, the, uh, to water the father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. 
When they came home to their father well, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to his son and called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign, uh, in a foreign land. The book of Acts explains that Moses spent 40 years in Midian then. James Boyce writes that Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something, 40 years in the desert of Midian, learning to be nothing, and 40 years in the wilderness, proving God to be everything. God spent two years of, uh, for, for each, each year of life that Moses left, uh, lived, two years of them were in preparation for ministry. For every one year, he spent actually ministering to the people of Israel. Moses certainly depended on God's power and grace to accomplish what God called him to do, but the experience he had for 40 years in Egypt, followed by 40 years in the Midian Desert, did have a shaping effect on Moses' life. God wastes nothing. When we're in the wilderness, God is at work. He often prepares us for our next step of our lives by forming us through our trials today. And this brings us to the last verses that we're going to study in this passage today. Verses 23 through 25, Exodus 2. During these many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. We leave Moses here, and we go back to Egypt. The Israelites are still in slavery. Their condition has not changed in the 80 years since Moses was saved from death in the Nile. Sometimes our lives, your life, my life, are defined by difficult conditions, by anxiety, by fear, things that will not go away and cause us to groan and cry out for deliverance from God. And I think that reflecting on these three verses and the four key words we find in them will give us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. In verse 23, the passage says that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help and that their cry of rescue from slavery came up to God. Understand that at this time, we are a long way from the Red Sea. Their deliverance is not coming tomorrow. At this point in the text, we are even farther away from Canaan or King David or the greater Jesus. We are a long, long way from the end of the age when God will make everything right. We are not talking about believing for deliverance tomorrow. Because tomorrow, your thing or whatever it is that's bothering you will probably still be there. And after the crisis you face today fades, there will still be another crisis du jour for you to experience. So for you and me, like the Israelites, we are stuck in our own situations and we cry out to God for deliverance. This verse 23 is from a horizontal perspective. 
It's what people see in their physical reality. They don't know what's going on behind what they can see and feel and hear. Verse 23 is you and me in the midst of our struggle. We are aware of only our circumstances and our fears and our anxiety. Verse 23 is watching the news and listening to the headlines that are only bad news, a killer pandemic, the possibility of nuclear war in the Ukraine, banks collapsing left and right. All the people of Israel know is that they are suffering in slavery and their cry has gone up to heaven. That's all they know. They know we are slaves. They know we are oppressed. We know we have cried out to God. They are not experiencing salvation right now. And that's incredibly important for us to keep in mind. That's what's happening in the horizontal. However, there's something else happening in the vertical that they are not aware of. And it is always happening. And we are not aware of it either. God's providence is an amazing thing. Uh, and it's what's amazing about it from our perspective is that we can only see God's providence in hindsight. Do you recognize that? Do you know that? I can't see God's providence looking from here to tomorrow. I can only see God's providence by reflecting on what happened yesterday to bring me to today. Because right now, I have no idea how God is working all things together for good. I don't know that. All I know is that what I'm walking through, what I'm experiencing, what I'm dealing with today, what I'm suffering, that's my reality, which brings us to verses 24 and 25. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. There are four words in these verses that are key to our being able to trust and endure in the midst of our fears and anxiety. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. First, God heard. God hears your groaning. That's good news. God hears your groaning. People who are suffering often say, it seems like God's not listening. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to the point where you feel like God's not listening? Or maybe that's where you are right now. When it seems like God is not listening, you need to be reminded that God hears your groaning. The natural tendency of a suffering heart is to assume that God doesn't hear. Sometimes we think God doesn't hear. We doubt that he when we think that God doesn't hear, we doubt he cares for us. We fear the worst. Sometimes we take it a step further and we shake our fist at God and we blame God for our troubles. We may even turn away from following God because we are in the midst of going through our thing. We are crying out to God but we are not experiencing immediate relief. We assume is God, that God is not hearing us, and if God is not going to hear, why bother? Everyone in Israel who thought that was wrong. In spite of what they saw, in spite of what they felt, Scripture tells us that God heard their groanings. How do we know? The Bible makes it clear. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Psalm 55, 17 says, Evening and morning and noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Proverbs 15, 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. What are you going to believe, your fears and anxiety or the word of God? 
1 John 5, 13 to 15 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. God hears us. And it's a privilege to be heard by God. It's a comfort to be heard by God. It may not seem like it in and of itself. And when your circumstances are not changing, but just holding on to this theological reality brings help. The second word is God remembers. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And this is also important to hold on to. God did not remember Israel because they were the good guys. He remembered his promises. He remembered his covenant. Israel's performance had nothing to do with God's remembering. And that's often another place that we go in our despair. The first is God is not listening to my suffering. The second, the reason God is not listening, listening is that I have done something wrong. He's angry with me. I'm not good enough enough. That's wonky thinking. Here's the reality. There's not one righteous. No, not one. Never in your life will you ever be good enough to earn the favor of God, not on your own merit. If God gave you what you earned, you would wake up in hell tomorrow morning, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God does not deliver his people because they deserve deliverance. No people have ever been good enough to deserve deliverance, and that's good news. Here's uh, because God remembers, what God remembers is not my sin, but his covenant. God looks at Israel in the midst of their suffering and remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in spite of the fact that not one of the Israelites deserved to be delivered. If we have come to Jesus in faith, we are in him. We are part of his new covenant, and God never forsakes his covenant. It's against his nature. He can't forsake it. The third word in this passage is God saw. God saw the people of Israel. If we are honest, this one tends to bother us a little. We think, certainly, if God was watching what was happening in my life uh, and he knew what was going on right now, he wouldn't have allowed it. But Scripture says in Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made the heaven and the earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the sh your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God does not slumber or sleep. He misses nothing. Think back a few years when, when COVID came, it wasn't the angels running to God saying, hey, God, you come here, you better check this out. Instead, it was probably God saying to the angels, hey, come here, watch this. Three, two, one, boom, COVID. So nothing surprises God. Nothing shakes him off the throne. When your loved one died, God was not absent. When your parents divorced, God was not absent. When you failed that class or lost that job, God was not absent. Why is there comfort in this? 
don't, don't ever think that God is not in control of the bad stuff. If you think that, then you can't trust God to be in charge of a broken heart or a marriage or a pandemic. If you don't trust him to be in control of a pandemic, how do you trust him to get you from here to heaven? He is either sovereign or he is not. And if he is not sovereign, your salvation is not secure. But if he is sovereign, then at the worst moment of your life, he was not absent. Every day, God is still on the throne. And the last word, God knows. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is not about God being informed. The implication is that this is intimate knowledge. What does God know? God knows which circumstances will maximize his glory. And in case you're wondering, that's more important than your comfort. God knows what you really need far better than you ever will. It, this is providence you will only see in hindsight. The longer we live, the more we realize that we can say, I prayed for that, I didn't get that, but if I had gotten that, I would never have gotten this. And so you can see God's hand working in those things. God knows what you can bear. You don't. You thought you knew until you bore more than you thought you could. You learned God knew and he showed you. God knows your deliverance is coming. He knows how, he knows when. This is what was happening in the realm that Israel could not see. It is always what is happening with God's people. To, to know how and why this works, we need to look at the cross. God knew at the cross that he was working out your redemption. Whatever you are experiencing now is not bigger than a dead Jesus. But Jesus did not stay dead. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can bring you through your struggle. That is because God always rescues his people. Sometimes he rescues them from something. Sometimes he rescues them through something. And it's always for his glory and our good. We serve a God who hears. We serve a God who remembers. We serve a God who sees. We serve a God who knows. Keep trusting in the one who keeps you trusting. Jill, you want to take us a song?